Hey everyone, this is Adam Simmons from Project Geospatial, and you're about to watch our series, Adam and Daryl View the World, a show where we bring on amazing individuals from around industry and discuss their experiences, expertise, and insights. Ahead of this segment, I want to introduce our guest, Mark Dumas, who is currently the Chief Strategy Officer of Coleman International. That role puts Mark in a position to leading the company's efforts around analytics, strategic technical planning, partnership and channel development, mergers, acquisitions, and many more things. Mark is a well-respected entrepreneur, geospatial scientist, and technology innovator with 20 years of experience in our community. His previous roles are the CEO and founder of SPADAC, a geospatial intelligence company that was acquired by GOI in 2010, and the chief strategy officer of Planet Risk, where he tackled new ideas around global big data and risk analytics. That business was sold to Coleman in 2018. There are tons more I can say about Mark, but I'll let you learn more by watching the show. Enjoy, everyone. Hi, welcome to Project Geospatial. I'm Adam Simmons. With me again is uh, for Adam and Daryl View the World, Daryl Murdoch. And uh, Daryl, go ahead and introduce this round, uh, the guest for, for this session. Well, it's, um, thank you, Adam. And uh, hi, everybody. Um, awfully pleased today uh, to have with us uh, Mark Dumas. And, and Mark is a man of many, many talents. And uh, I, I wish we had four hours to spend with Mark today because then we could spend an hour each on four of the bazillion topics that Mark is quite literally a, an expert at. Um, uh, Mark, why don't you give a little sketch of the various things? Because I'm trying to remember the first time we actually met was uh, it was well over a decade ago. Uh, so um, why don't you tell folks right now what you're working on at present, and then we'll kind of jump into some other stuff because I think the, what you're working on is some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. So um, after we sold Planet Risk, um, we sold the products group to Everbridge. We sold the services group to Coleman International. And I met with Dan Burkhan, the CEO of Coleman International, and we drew up a deal for me to help him build up a technology practice over there. So uh, we're working on some things. And in that light, we completed recently, uh, not too recently, about two years ago, the centrifuge acquisition. And we've been doing some things that are interesting with that under an NGA Crata that I think this audience um, you know, would be interested in. And we're looking at how we can scale that up and potentially open source elements of that uh, technology as we look to build a potentially a platform around that. And we're working a lot with um, commercial big data around IoT and mobile device data and doing some insight analytics around that currently. Yeah, so... Um for those that don't know, uh, so CRATE is a cooperative research and development agreement. It's basically a, a no-cost contract that allows, you know, private uh, entities like like Coleman International to be able to interact with the government, and you can exchange ideas, you can exchange data. It's just a no-cost contract, so they don't actually pay for anything that happens. And, uh, and so there's a reason for that. Yeah. Because the government can't ask you to do something for free. For free, exactly. So you can put a CRATE in place. Yeah. And you can provide free R&D services around government requirements for the hope that if you achieve something that the government's looking for, you can basically set yourself up for actual revenue at some point, which of yeah. course is the name of the game. Yeah, it, it is. Right. And, and it's it's kind of an interesting 
it's a, it's a, it's a really unique form that can be used by, it's also used by academia to work with government where there's no money involved because academia very often just lacks access to experts. Right. So, um, right. And, and so they just say, Hey, look, we've got an idea that we want to work on. Uh, I know yeah. that, uh, my good friend Todd Backestow at Penn state has got a creative with NGA. And they, they, he talks to analysts, and that was really the deal. It's like, hey, look, we have all this expertise in teaching GeoAnt, but we need access to GeoAnt analysts. Well, you know, I brought Todd into the industry. Uh, yes, uh, you we, did. We had Why I brought him up. <laughs> you want to, uh, it's a great story. Why don't you tell that story? It's actually pretty funny. Yeah, so, so you know, I was the CEO and founder of Spadak, and it was a great company, and we a lot of people – are still there. That company is the nucleus of Maxar Services Group still to this day. A lot of great folks are there, like Rob Torres and Jim Stokes and and so forth. Um, and we started that company in 2002, sold it in 2010. And I had some investors there, First Mark Capital out of New York. And Todd was interning for First Mark Capital. And as we prepared to exit the business in 2010, they, you know, obviously talked to your investors and they said, we'd like to send this guy down there help you help you get stuff you know ready to go and work the models and all that so i all right you know meet the guy because his dad works at penn state in the geospatial uh, arena and so um we basically brought todd down to um help us with spadac and when we sold it he slipped right into goi like everybody else and he got the bug and he's been in geospatial since Yes. Uh, hardcore since 2010, I guess. If he's if he's out there listening, he'll appreciate that. Yeah. And, and, oh, well, we'll make sure we tag him uh, when we post yeah. it. <laughs> well, yeah, we definitely will, and, and we'll probably tag his dad too. I was just chatting with his dad a couple of days ago, and uh, uh, Todd's very quick to point out he is not a junior, right? Because they have a different middle name. So that's right. Todd. Yeah. But he he right. met his wife because because of me, because of the whole deal. So that, that was a life-changing moment for that young man. So he owes you. Totally. Yes. Yeah, over at GOI. Yeah. If I hadn't sold the GOI, he wouldn't have met his wife. How about them, Apple? Oh, got to love that, man. It's all always that that, that type of... Uh, yeah, I love a good story. Yeah, that's, that is a great story. So um, you know, talk to us a little bit about... Um, so one of the things that's near and dear to my heart, you know, that, that is, is how to enable early stage... Um, early stage companies to really realize their goals, right? So, I mean, it's, I often say to people as they say, oh, I got a great idea to do something. I said, great. Okay. So how are you going to pay for it? Right. And, you know, it's like, I always say romance ain't got no chance without finance. And it's a, it's a, it's a mantra that may, may sound really stupid, but it's really true. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Talk to us a little bit about, you know, angel investing, investment capital, and just kind of, it's a, it's a crazy world. There's lots of different facets to it. I'm seeing some really interesting stuff out there right now, right? Um, I'm seeing there are a number of, there are three different entities, I won't use their names because I don't want to get them all upset, that are, that are quite, quite honestly and purposely moving into spaces that you and I have, have been in for a long time. Um, and they're obviously putting together these building blocks. You can see them, you know, there's one company that there's been five acquisitions in two years and they're all by the same folks. Right. And so they're obviously growing capability. Um, you know, and this is, a, this is kind of a very well-established institutional investors doing that. Um, but I also know that you're involved with some other really early stage 
capital. Um, so whichever way you'd like to go on this, uh, maybe start from the early stage and then talk. Yeah. Move out a little bit. Yeah. yeah I'll start with context. Um, when, um, when we sold Spadac to GOI, obviously multi-billion dollar publicly traded company on NASDAQ, um, talking with Matt O'Connell, I said, Hey, I'll, I'll run special projects for you. And we basically did strategic investment at a GOI and, uh, we missed out on some good stuff though. Boy, we did. And, uh, uh, you know, um, I can't go into that, uh, publicly here, but, uh, but it was good. And, and, um, what a tease, man. That's yeah, it. I, know. I was just thinking about, I, I, do. Bring, I mean, we're, we're going to bring up the deal. Mark, we you and I do. both don't work for GOI anymore. That company's long gone. Yeah, I know. I don't want to bring up the deals we didn't do, but there's some regrets there. I wish I'd been a little bit more emotional about some of those deals and like push the board, but, um, but we did some, and then we, um, Later on, I started an, a, a very prolific angel group that still exists today in the DC area called Riverbend Capital and um, named after Riverbend Park, which is right around the corner from me here in Great Falls. And uh, and we we do a lot of early stage investing. We've probably done 50 deals in four and a half years, which is quite a bit. And um, it's not a fund. It's an angel group. So um, So if the audience doesn't know that, there's like a thousand or 2000 angel groups in the U S and it's a lot of times it's just people getting together and passing the hat. They get pitches from companies and they'll write a check for a hundred or 200 grand because there literally is figuratively as there's a hat going around the, the table and people kind of tossing money in and not everybody participates, right? It's just uh, maybe 10% of the audience. And um, I got about 75 members and we're growing. Um, and uh, so we've done some stuff. So so in our world, we participated in the native deal. And we like that because I like the idea of collecting uh, data um, off of mobile phones around, you know, a unique value proposition of people are essentially mechanical Turks, but they're geospatially distributed to go, hey, go collect data, but in this specific area. And here's the data we want, and we want it kind of clean, and we want the survey data. So we like native. Um, we've also got another one called Patrocinium, which is a threat and safety um, application around um, where people are in a building. And, um, you know, that one is – and there's all kinds of stuff that can happen in a building. And, you know, long ago when I was just a technology coder, specifically a coder – I worked on the Oklahoma City bombing scenario after the fact to model what would happen to any generic building for uh, the National Guard anywhere in the United States. We could literally take a building, we could sort of create a model of it, and we could do a, put a bomb around it and go, what would happen structurally with you know 90% accuracy? And if something like that happens, you want to know where people are. Um, uh, because a lot of people did live right they're stranded and then or anything uh, look at Las Vegas with the shooter where are people in that scenario and so Patrocinium is working on if people opt into that and they're in a corporate environment you, you can essentially know where people are if something happens and threaten safety and so we did that one as well and that that recently had uh, got another round native is doing really well as, as well so 
So we've done some early stage geospatial investing in Riverbend Capital for context. And if you want, we can get into some of those factors that. Yeah, that's what we're going to get. Okay, so you know there are folks that 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 have that that listen from uh, to the program that actually are early stage. You know, they're startups. So, yeah. um, kind of walk through the process and, and talk about one of the factors when you're evaluating somebody. What are you looking for? Yeah, uh, basically, we we call it the dogs are sniffing the dog food. Um, and uh, I got that expression from. I'm, I'm not sure that's what they're yeah. saying, but okay. Yeah, yeah. and they, yeah. they, 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 there is a customer um, that is really intrigued by what's happening, and the pre-money valuation essentially is a function of how many of those customers, and are they starting to write checks? And the more that people are potentially interested in the solution, that can be verified. Uh, in the course of due diligence, um, but the, 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 essentially the more likelihood of the funding, right? I mean, it makes sense. If you've got a thousand people in line thinking this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and they're, they're intending to fund it at some point when it's ready or along the way, it's going to have a high pre-money valuation and we're likely to participate if we don't, if we think that we're not too late and it's too expensive for us. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, there may be just a few parties interested in something and it gives us some kind of um, perspective that there could be a lot more like just, okay, if these three people are interested and they haven't really marketed it and our imagination says, this is a very big TAM and that, that problem can marketing can be solved. If the solution is real, um, then, uh, Hey, that might be a good bet from a, from an investor perspective it's probably got a lower valuation. So there's a little bit more upside actually in some, in some ways. So um, we're looking at that. Um, as far as techniques for the, for the entrepreneur, I think the, uh, you know, number one thing is obviously is revenue cures all, as I say, and I don't care what type of revenue, it cures everything. If, if they're selling themselves as services to keep the lights on, to develop a product, that's cool. If they're building a technology-enabled services company with high gross margins, that's cool. That's valuable. I would know that. That's SPADAC, right? We sold that for a lot of money. If um, uh, if they're getting license revenue, um, which a lot of people focus on in the sort of the SaaS world and the DAS world, uh, you know, that's cool. But if anything, revenue, when you get somebody to give you money or the intent to give you money, you have achieved something. You have proven that there's something somebody feels is worth buying. So as long as you're not going to starting from scratch, basically going to an investor and say, hey, I got nothing. I'm not selling anything. I'm trying to sell you on a concept that's dry. Right. Now, you can do concepts, but um, there's been concepts that get funded, but you can't ask for a huge valuation and it's, there are investors at every perspective of the risk return curve and the investors that invest in concepts are looking for a huge return because they're making a hundred bets and only five are going to pay off. Yeah. But when they pay off, they're like a hundred X. So the math works for some multiple of invested capital return, like, you know, you know, 10 X over the portfolio because of those two or three. So you, 
if you're um, a huge PE fund looking for three X returns, you just don't want to lose anything and everything should be like a two X, but you're hoping for a few four X's or five X's in there because you're deploying a billion and you just don't want, you just don't want to lose anything. You don't want anything to be less than S and P 500 return or else people would be uh, betting on the S and P 500. So how much do you bet on the people versus the hard numbers? Early stage is all about the people because inevitably something's it's like the plan is cool and it gives us, it, get, it excites us, but the plan's gonna most likely, I have not, we've seen rarely, rare, have very rarely seen plans that meet, meet the number. Have you ever First seen all, everybody's selling if ever, they're going in, and they're going in and they're giving you a plan that's conservative, then they're not selling. Yeah. And have you ever seen one? I, I you know, I've said yeah. through to, I've gone to, you know, to Riverbank yeah. Capital meetings and, and yeah. I'm like, you, you never find one that actually holds, right? Well, there's a whole hockey stick and in the back of our minds is like, okay, that's cool. Let's just cut that in half. In the back of our minds, is it still cool? And is it still going to get there? And, um, but, but it's not just that, um, that is important because, well, you think you have 15 months runway, but you're probably going to have like eight when the revenue really starts flowing, but it's, it, it's just, they're going to have to weep, dodge, pivot, you know? And you need to bet on the on the team when it's small. Um, and we've been in situations where like two people co-found, and within twelve months, one of the co-founders is out. We're like, oh god, you know. But as long one of those founders is in it to win it, but we feel kind of comfortable. So it's definitely about the person. Yeah. So how much actual skin in the game? Talk to us a little bit about, you know, what you would consider skin in the game for an entrepreneur. Right. I mean, is it, you know, somebody's moonlighting and they're putting their own cash in. They basically they've quit their job and they're doing it. So, you know, what is that you look at to say, you know what, this person, I believe in this person. I believe that they're committed. Right. Yeah, what well, I can tell you, I mean, quantitatively. If, and it's weird, but if they've got a wife and kids or something, that's that takes some uh, kahunas and they're probably in it. But um, but they could also fold pretty quickly. Right. If it's not if I look yeah. at that and that's their situation and they're like, what are you paying yourself? It's like twenty five K a year. I'm thinking uh, family might not be too happy if this thing doesn't you know, get to where it needs to be. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, skin in the game doesn't have to be cash. You know, people think they have to come up, the founders putting in a hundred grand or something. If they're basically discounting their salary, then they're given, they're, they're given it a run. And, um, and that's usually what it takes. You know, then we'll see deals where like, wait, what were you paying yourself next year? 200 grand in the, in the first year. Um, the other thing we look for is um, obviously track record is important, but in startup world, um, I like seeing hungry. Um, and that money's not everything, but it's nice to see people that are a little hungry. And if they're kind of starving artists per se, they might be a little bit more motivated. Um, um, but I, they, they don't have, long story short, they don't have to show up with cash. They show up with a sacrifice or they show up with a motivation. And it could be the passion. Um, of what they're doing. That's, that's huge. Just really just seeing the passion and, you know, and, and I, I said this the other day, 90% of communication is nonverbal. 
I guarantee you right now on this on this podcast, 90% of what may be being said by us is actually cues, highlights, inflections, pauses, and everything else. Nobody's going to remember the specific words I say, but it's how you say it. And that's what we're looking for from these entrepreneurs. Hmm. So the other end of the spectrum, the institutional investors, right? You see them kind of getting into different spaces now. What are you seeing uh, on the landscape, right? So you're you're kind of in a, in, a, in the catbird seat, right? You know, because you've been you've been through the you know the the startup acquisition process. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now you're in a you know in a situation where you're part of you know a bunch of angel investors, and yeah. you also are investing in in new technologies for your your current gig with Coleman. So you know, talk to us a little bit about what you see for the institutional side. Yeah, we really we really have been. I mean, I'm still you know I can see deals from the Coleman hat with the Coleman hat on. Um, I like to say I like to think that there's not a geospatial deal on the East Coast that I don't at least see. Uh, a, de- a small deck for, uh, you know, um, a highlight sheet and, um, and get a, get a, get a good run at it. But, um, from an institutional side, um, I'll, I'll shout out to Jim Hunt over at Labrock. Those guys are awesome. And they're, uh, they're a partner native and we're trying to do more with them. Um, but that guy's been a geospatial wizard his whole life and they, they just know how to find them. They got a number of them in the portfolio, Morpheus space, cesium, some other things, a whole mix of things over there. Um, and um, there are a, a variety of things that people are investing in. And it's really this explosion of sensor capabilities with explosion of sensor capabilities comes the explosion of the potential that um, something can be gleaned by that. Um, whether it's, cars going down the road in the inner city and scanning with LIDAR looking for changes that then affect um, a a lower cost of maintenance for utility infrastructure for the city or whatever. It's just kind of, it's awesome. And it of course starts using the military side, but you know, it then kind of bleeds over. It eventually is like affordable commercially. Yeah. The, I've always found um, you know, right from the from the from the get go, um, you know, I got into the business, you know, looking at satellite imagery, and that's how it was. You know, it was, but I didn't actually start with satellites. I actually started with airborne, right? So I was actually, yeah, uh, you know, I was I was a commercial pilot, and I got hired part time to go do some commercial camera operating and uh, and and piloting, right? So uh, I had a girlfriend at the time that introduced me to somebody. Says, hey, you got to talk to Al. Al Al has a has his own company. And so that's sort of how I got in it. But, um, you know, it, it, it seems like a billion years ago. And now if you think about all of the location enabled devices, right. Um, talk to us a little bit about what's going on, you know, with, with, with the acquisition that you mentioned at the outset a couple of years ago. Right. So we've got centrifuge and that, you know, that's a, a really powerful tool. Um, you know, yeah. um, truth in advertising. I used to work with Steve at Object FX, right? So I just follow yeah. every time yeah. he shows up someplace, I seem to follow him, right? You know, you know Steve. Steve's been a, a staple of the community. I, I remember yeah. I, I wanted to buy Object Effects. That was basically three months left on Spade Axodometer to sell to uh, GOI. It's kind of risky to buy something just before you sell your own company. Like Steve, I can't help you, but I'll tell you what, 
I know somebody who buy your buy your company and 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 we 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 it got bought by Transvoyant um, and helped them out. But Steve and I reunited, you know, with with Centrifuge and um, guy can walk in any government building with his uh, full scope poly and, and talk about anything uh, with with yeah, he's a rock star. real credibility. It's it's amazing um, and a good feel for um, a good feel for things. Uh, Centrifuge is a data visualization tool. It's been around forever, and um, and it's just a quality tool. Um, to be honest, it was a value value play. And coming in over at Coleman, um, we were looking for something that would give us a chip at the table. You got to differentiate yourself a little bit in anything you do. And Coleman, um, my colleagues at Coleman, we, we just wasn't, it didn't start out as a technology business. It's really a counter-proliferation international security and uh, logistics support company with a rich tradition. Um, going to be close to 300 employees and we're 300 employees. Um, we're du- we've doubled revenue since I've been there. I can't take all credit for that, but um, in two years and um, uh, it didn't have a technology chip and it's like, Hey, Dan, this, uh, this little thing here is on the market. And, and I know from my m world, especially when I was at GOI and other places, big companies, they can't buy anything small. It, it costs the same amount of due diligence to buy some entrepreneurs, take note. You no nobody it, it, big companies need to spend a lot of money on acquisition. They'll spend ten million dollars in internal due diligence costs, support costs to buy something sometimes. And you know, so they're not going to buy a company for five million bucks when it costs them ten million dollars to figure it out. <laughs> and um, you know, and so what happens is, is there's like, you know. Um, a market for doing small ball M&A that people just miss out on the good. So I, I kind of sift through that from time to time, especially if you don't have a lot of pocket change for M&A at the time. I was like, Hey, we can bite this deal off. We can absorb the GNA easy, uh, cut a million dollars of costs out within, you know, on a run rate basis within one quarter. And we're going to, I can walk in just about every intelligence community customer um, within 30 days. And I like that. You can't buy that with BD people. But we got Steve as well. So we did get a BD, yeah. And, and so I look at it as a quality value play. And um, and people are like, oh, but use Tableau. And, you know, yeah, Tableau is multi-billion with a thousand software developers. And you're going to get something good with Tableau. But we've got a little niche component. And that, it's the tool in the toolbox we always use. Jim and I, Jim Stokes, shout out. We used to always talk about tool in the toolbox. There's a tool for everything. And our tool, you know, sometimes you need screwdrivers, sometimes you need the hammer and whatever. And this tool does what it does really well uh, for an analyst journey to explore data and visualize it. And it can be geospatial and you can derive something from it that other things can't do very well. And uh, it's great. So um, we are going to take a major, can't really, I kind of get it to it on this call, but on this podcast, but we're gonna we're gonna have some big news, I think, here at the start of the year. We're gonna take a, a really cool, disruptive direction with it. Hey, if you feel like using us as a kind of an early release, let us know. Uh, on the yeah, other hand, yeah. uh, Mark, I, I'm gonna throw you a curveball because uh, it looks like there is a few people watching us, and uh, there's a there's questions coming in. Okay. One that's a little bit unrelated, but uh, it's come up. Uh, uh, so the article Seeking Alpha a few weeks ago put out a uh, uh, sorry the the, the 
the the website seeking alpha put out an article related to maxar and they actually put out the estimate that maxar could be positioning itself to be acquired within 12 to 15 months what do you think about that um <laughs> well <laughs> not being recorded man yeah i've got a lot of friends at maxar i i think that um it, one of the best things of Maxar is, of course, the services group. I think, I think they'd probably love to spend that out, take the cash, and maybe, um, you know, I'm sure the services group would love to spin out and be their own, be their own team anyway. Um, I'm sure Tony Frazier would love that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's tried, but um, the integrators that are out there have traditionally shot away from owning hard assets in space. They all have. And I don't see that change anytime soon. So I don't know who's buying them. Oh, that's, that, that would be my question. I'm like, you know, they're, they're a big geospatial company. They got a good mix of analytics. And, you know, if they're they not, just they're, keep on growing. They're uh, already traded. The stock price has recovered really well. It's really done well. Uh, you know, just keep going. And they lowered their debt massively. And, um, you know, I think it's positioned really well. What I love to see those guys do, to be honest, is to my philosophy on this is don't be afraid to do smaller investments, minority investments and really kind of in even small acquisitions. And I always used to say is we pat we passed on Mapbox out of GOI. OK, things like that. And so you 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 could. Yeah, we we did. I didn't. I was like, do this deal, do this deal. <laughs> um, and um, what was the pullback? Come on, tell us this. The, I want to hear. Gunderson, Gunderson is uh, probably super happy that didn't work out. I'm sure he's super happy. Oh yeah. He, uh, he but, um, you know, he went the Series A route, and the rest is history. And you know, um, but um, I would say like. These companies, um, they want to spend so much money on, M on M&A and it has to be a bigger thing. Well, screw that. Uh, have a smaller team that looks at some smaller deals that doesn't spend a gazillion dollars of due diligence to do something. Start a little fund. Okay, you can't put a million dollars in an acquisition pool, but maybe capitalize Maxar Ventures with $25 million. You spend a gazillion dollars on satellites. Capitalize. That's not going to impact EBITDA. Put $25 million aside, start Maxar Ventures, and then have a little team or a guy like me or somebody else with that on that. And, and we'll co-invest we'll co alongside with like Lavrock and other people and do some great deals that if you then like and you can stitch into your strategic um, tentacles, then you can uh, pluck them off when they're successful. That's my, that would be what I would do. Hint, Todd. Hint. <laughs> Todd. Tony. Hint, yeah. Todd. Yeah. Yeah. Dan. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll wait for more questions coming from the peanut gallery here because uh, they're a little, little bit generalized over there. So uh, what do you got, Daryl? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Mark. Um, you know, slightly different, different twist on this, on the same thing, right? So you mentioned, you know, work that's going on on the East coast and then that you probably have at least sniffed at, you know, some sort of package. What about the, you know, talk a little bit about the small sat community, right? Cause that's not just East coast. 
right? And that's kind of a global phenomenon that's really having a fairly major impact, uh, you know, back sort of to the geospatial world. It doesn't, I mean, our, our conversations don't always have to be about, about geospatial, but it's really, a, uh, to, to me, having, having watched where they started off with, you know, a couple dozen people showing up at a, a, a small sat um, um, conference out in, out in Utah, right, at Utah State. And now we got, you know, how many small sats that are uh, literally uh, already have launch date planned. It's yeah. Crazy. And, and standards, right? So right. You, they started developing standards like the PC industry. Here's the motherboard and okay, develop, you guys go develop chips and there's a standard for plugging them up, the chips in and you guys develop memory and, and here's these dim and sim stockets that are, there's a standard and they, you know, once they started saying, okay, everything has got to be crammed into this case and you can, and, and we're going to provide the backplane for power and blah, blah, blah. It just, it was awesome. And they're so smart. They borrowed a play. Um, that essentially Dell invented, um, in my opinion, uh, Michael Dell. But uh, th- this, I, I didn't, I, I even myself didn't anticipate what would happen like that. I didn't, I, I was like, of course, we knew EO was just, just more and more like, well, who wants to put more EO up? But then again, if you can put a small sat EO up, that's maybe not it might be 80 percent is good but you can sell the product for 10 percent of the cost then i'll take that because it's good enough <laughs> and it's not just eo of course there's rf and there's you know ambient and temperature and all kinds of stuff and and then different applications and uh and it's kind of like because it's affordable hey give it a shot it's just i couldn't believe that and you know and now I've always been a huge fan of all the combinatorial aspects of that data. So layering all that data to get some kind of derived solution is the coolest part about all of that. That is the coolest part. So that's, that's the part that I want to start, right? So here's, here's my entrepreneurial uh, gauntlet that I'll throw down for you. I want to start a company that will literally be the, we're going to call ourselves the phenomenologists. Yeah. We're literally going to take all of these data. I got to work on your names here. Okay. So, okay. So the phenom, right? Phenom. Right. The phenoms. And what we're going to do is we're gonna take every chunk of data that, that anybody wants to give to us, not be the underwriter labs, but we're going to be the ones that figure out what you can do with, with combinations of data and what you can do. What are the limits of use for your particular data? Given yeah. the fact that, you know, maybe it's a five meter data set. Okay, so what can you really get with that, right? Yeah. And I'm not talking about NIRS, uh, you know, from a military standpoint, right? You know, can I recognize a tank or an aircraft or something like that? But there yeah. are other practical applications that will result in analytics. Because my, my hypothesis, nobody wants to buy data anymore. Everybody wants an answer, but they don't want to have to actually pay for pixels. Right. And nobody, I mean, who wants to process all that data? So you, you, if you can skip getting the infrastructure investment and just get the answer through like a, a West, a web service, uh-huh. um, you know, and Descartes doing a lot with that, you know, API sets and so forth, you, you, you give them a picture and they'll come back and tell you like a picture of a tennis court and, and give them a geographic area. And they'll give you the, the points on the map that match with some confidence score where the tennis courts are. 
you don't have to process the data. You're just extracting the. Well, I'm wondering. I'm wondering when they're just going to skip to why not just a Google Assistant or Alexa for Intel at that point, you know, and yeah. uh, just skip ahead. I mean, I know I know companies like Diffio were doing that at GeoInt, but so, something along those lines. Yeah, and the data the data is proliferating. So the more the the platforms then absorb the data, and the platforms can provide the answers, and just customers don't have to deal with setting up environments and all the Hadoop stacks and then, you know, hire three more people to process it to maybe barely differentiate themselves. Um, Now, as far as data analysis goes, you know, if I may, if I may touch on the data analysis piece, which is my strength is, you know, you've got to run with your data scientists. Is there an additive element to any new data set? You test your receiver operator curves, any, any improvements in the model and various, gen, gen, you know, generations of the model. And you you see if the cost of the data is worth additive to the model or swapping a data set out, all of that kind of stuff. And then, of course, with AI, um, if you can train these things and, you know, you send it, um, a bunch of data layers and it tells you, well, it's this layer, this layer, and this layer weighted like this. That gives you um, a precise answer for what you're looking for. That Those kinds of things are pretty cool. So that minimizes your data by next go. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, you know, uh, our guest last month, Colleen um, Kelly McHugh, and uh, you know, that's what she does. Right. And so uh, Kelly, there's a- Kelly used to work for me. I know that's why I'm in there. Like you know, it's like, yeah. see, you are the, the the tree from which all knowledge flows. Right? Yeah, I'm the Kevin Bacon of geospatial. You are, man. You're like you're like you're like Kevin Bacon because nobody's more than like two or three steps away. It's yeah. like degrees of separation. The, the chat co- chat channels over here is saying uh, Matthew Benconahu, Mark. Uh, okay. Oh, nice reference. Oh, oh, that's a pretty good one. I'll take it. All right. Yeah, but she did. So shout out to, to Colleen. She was doing all the crime analyst stuff when we brought over Spadak and for DHS for us and LE. And, you know, for y'all that were cool about that, you know, like that in, interested in that area it was all the crime modeling, uh, why are crimes happening, happening in certain places and looking at the spatial forecast stuff there, which is um, still fun, fun to do. I'm going to hopefully help a client out with that uh, later this month. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, and that's, that's, you know, that's work that that's ongoing and it's not going to, that, that ain't going to go away. That's neat. So. Yeah, we were, we were, I was still like, even just like a, two years ago, Planet Risk, we had um, a bunch of power companies in Chicago. We were running the data on the, on the, the incidents that were happening around the, the, their crews. And they literally wanted to know which neighborhoods to go into at which times on wow. what days for the minimal amount of exposure or risk to violent crime. And we could do it. And it was not obvious. It was not obvious. It was like in this neighborhood, 2 to 3 a.m. on Tuesdays, in this neighborhood, 12 to 1 a.m. on Wednesdays, in this neighborhood, 2 to 3 p.m. on Fridays or something. And if it's raining, then, you know, it's whatever. And they loved it. They were like, and I love that. I want to get back into doing that some more. Hopefully we find some good customers for that. Well, that will be, I, I, I look forward to seeing that. Um, uh, and, and Adam will be your test case, right? So, so, so with that said, what, what, what area of analytics, you just kind of hinted at a little bit, but what area of analytics with the current technologies emerging right now, you know, you got your RF, 
tons of small sats, tons of even emerging sensor modes. You know, people, you know, obviously radar is doing an emerging thing, but uh, people even talking about uh, bringing uh, a bigger play into IR into the mix, even nighttime IR. So, um, so, so what's got you excited about taking advantage of if you start one of these projects again? Oh, there's so much. Oh man. I, I like the, um, I kind of like it all, Adam. I like, I like, I like, I like fair. data. I want it all. I, I like collapsing the data and figuring out what mix of it is for a certain project. It's like having all the spices in the spice rack. But what excites me the most is I don't think you can really talk about geospatial right now without ignore with by, without. It, it, with ignoring terrestrial collection and that's just expanding rapidly. And I'm not talking about the mobile device stuff that's in the news uh, negatively. Sometimes I'm talking about just anything like Wi-Fi hotspots and like, you know, which device are connected to those or um, LIDAR, like I said, for utility management, um, you know, um, and, and I'll say this too, you know, what, what excited me a couple of years ago was all the risk management of this with planet risk. And I still love that. Um, but we found that customers like to you get more money if you're selling opportunity than you are if you're selling risk management. <laughs> that was one of the things we learned there. It's fun to like be the hero and like build risk management solutions using geospatial data. Um, but the security departments don't have a lot of money. Um, but if you can sell something that makes people money, you're going to get money because you can like, Hey, pay us X amount of dollars per year and you can make X amount more. I would encourage entrepreneurs to look at that from that perspective. So what kinds of things help in that regard, but there's always going to be the opportunity for people to save money as well, which is still interesting. Well, it's, you know, we have these conversations internally about, you know, engaging with government, right? So you don't ever make money for the government. But you you can you can allow government officials to reallocate resources. You can yeah. save time, and time is money, right? Yeah. So it's well, you know, right. thinking about what served in the Beltway community. How do you yeah? How do you save lives, protect money, and optimize resources? Right, yeah, it's a big one. Now, so talk to us a little bit about you know what you think data wise uh, about IoT because IoT to me, uh, I'm not I'm not going to go on a, on a long rant. Um, but I see, you know, two very different camps of people that have sort of yeah. emerged uh, with the, you know, from the early, you know, acceptance of IoT. And I think we're still very, very early in IoT, obviously. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, people will go, where did IoT and geospatial cross? Where did the line get fuzzy? And it, obviously, at the end of the day, is, is there a spatial component to the IoT feedback that matters? And if there's a spatial component of the IoT, such as a position, um, then um, all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's in our domain again. And because um, now you can layer data on this other axes of X and Y or lat long or obviously time. And, um, and you've got essentially, I think, people that are dealing that are used to dealing with bigger data on the geospatial data side because of satellite data and all that, who were ready and willing and had all the chops 
also serving the U.S. government in massive scale stuff, whether it's at the fort, uh, as I say, to the population or um, the other places that could go in and deal with IoT um, at scale. So, so that's if you're talking about there's like IoT that's non-geo and it's like what's the level of all the Keurig coffee machines uh, in production that are syncing with some URL um, at some point. And it, the Keurig doesn't need to know exactly the location is like, okay, it's at this address. Um, but if it's something that is really beaconing and you're going to have a spatial element to it, then you really are layering. And it could be a battlefield, right? That'll drive the next battlefield will drive a lot of this innovation where it's, which right now can only happen. That'll so come um, most, most likely because they're always doing stuff. But then you need to know how things are happening, why they're happening in context, in time and in space to derive some insight. And it's going to be, it's going to stay big there. Yeah. I, you know, I, what I've, what I've seen emerging um, and, and, and it's, I, I'm sure this is probably way overly simplistic. Um, there's the adopters and then there's the haters, right? So, you know, from a commercial standpoint, you have people that are like, I'm not having a nest in my house. I'm not having anything that's connecting to anything because I don't trust it. And then yeah. you have the people are like, ah, that'll make my life easier. I don't care. We could go. My life's then, you know, yeah. I got 5,000 million Facebook friends anyhow. And I tweet every hour. So it doesn't matter. Go ahead and take my stuff. I don't care. I'll, I'll tell the audience my, my old man story around that. And that's if you ever, who, how many people had a Blackberry? in the audience. I'm like, I'm imagining all these hands going up, right? Oh, I, I could, but I refused. <laughs> <laughs> so I, remember, I remember when the iPhone came out, I remember the iPhone came out and I'm like, I'd never use that because I need to touch a keyboard. That was, that was my story. Like, I want to feel the button and I'm like, I can do it blindfolded in early, probably very bad texting and driving, but I could feel the keyboard. So I'll never switch. And then ultimately you realize like iPhone two, like, oh, well, there's all these virtual applications I can use the entire screen. So it becomes so convenient and you just learn to adapt. Well, I don't screw the tactile. I, this is too, this is too, the benefit is too great to, to, to pass. So I think um, that analogy, I'll never forget that in my mind. And for those that know that transition, um, and why Barry's not really around anymore <laughs> is because uh, if they don't think it's going to work, um, it's one of those things. Well, you know what? I think the market's going to it's going to speak. It, the nest becomes it. There's too many good things about the nest. I didn't think I would do Eero, and it's owned by I think it's owned by Amazon. But you know what? I had all kinds of Wi-Fi problems. I ordered the Eero, dropped in the three the three pucks, and dropped in a couple of extenders. I haven't had a Wi-Fi problem on my house in two years. Yeah, everybody. I think you're going to get those. Uh, you're you're going to get those. Folks. I know it's spying on my DNS calls. Um, although yeah. you can hack that hackathon, you can actually upgrade. You can actually change your DNS to Open DNS and basically, you know, take it out of Amazon's view. But you, uh, but it's too convenient. So yeah adopt that stuff that's where you're gonna it's too good now where's where's the fine line when you got stuff like uh rf technology coming out and that's becoming more transparent to people being aware of that thing uh that that those types of technologies for example you know yet you got this the 
Hawkeye 360, for example, they're up in the air. You got Cleos, you got a bunch of others, Aspire even. And then people are all of a sudden aware of these things. Are, are these just detecting the emitters or are they actually understanding communications? And I think there's a, a lot of education behind what this technology is truly doing, because I think there's a fine line with talking about consumer products and helping people understand what their what the privacy transparency is there. But all of a sudden, if these things are just out in the open about these technologies blindly collecting what people have, uh, people understand what that is. And so how do you, uh, where, where's that fine line where, where you, the, does the market demand with big companies and government just overwhelm consumer or, or public concerns or is, is it, or is it ignored? What do you think about that, Mark? I like that. I, it's a good one. He threw a, uh, you threw a doozy. Yeah. How much time? <laughs> <I had? laughs> There's like three parts and each one of them has a sub part. So I want to see you. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Wherever you want to take it. Yeah, no, right. It's, um, I would say, um, first of all, if we went and found a hundred people on the street corner, they wouldn't know who Hawkeye three sixty or Spire is. So. No, it's about awareness, right? But but here's yeah. here's the analogy, so Mark. Five G. You got those nuts yeah. out there. You think five G is is causing cancer left and right? But yeah. it's really it's a bandwidth fight, you know, between the guys who want to release five G and it's competing with existing satellite uh, communication networks that have existed for 20, 30, 40 years. So that's the real battle. But people understand that they think the signal is going to this new signal is going to cause them cancer or something. So I remember, so, okay, we'll roll it back and we'll, I, I keep, I don't mean to show my age or anything, but like, uh, you remember when the EO was the, the resolution concerns. And, um, and I remember, you know, beating my head against the desk over at GOI. What do you mean? We can't sell, we can't license one foot. I mean, <laughs> you can collect it from blind. Why can't we license one foot from the sat? Um, and all this stuff around, well, you can see all the trampolines and the trampoline owners, you know, don't want to tell the insurance companies and all this stuff. Or you could see people like what they have in their backyard, you know, how many tires they got stacked up or if they've got, you know, who knows, some kind of field, maybe a legal field in their backyard of some sort. And um, but it was steamrolled. It was steamrolled out. And I think um there's very few cases where the government can say you can't do this because uh, if it's essentially going to identify U.S. citizens. And I was on the phone with a specific person from a specific senator's office today, even discussion this, discussing this issue. And basically, as long as you're not selling identifiable U.S. person data to the U.S. government without a court order, you're okay. There you go. <laughs> so, anything else? Is no, okay. no, no. I, I didn't mean to take it into that direction, but I think it's an but interesting that's, that's topic. Where, but that's the direction of privacy. Yeah, that yeah. is exactly the direction. If it's that is it. If you're selling yeah. identifiable Mark, dot, Mark E. Dumas with this device was here, here, and here, and that's part of your data delivery, and you give that 
to anyone, or at least back to the U.S. government, then they're going to have a problem with it. So we get some smart ass who writes a social on this rooftop, and uh, then then you're in trouble. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. there was a there was a study that was done. You know, but this is the, here's another interesting piece when we talk talking about you know personally personally identifiable information, right, or yeah. personally public data, right. So. It, there was a study that was done, I believe it was by MIT. I'd have to go back and check for sure, but I'm pretty sure I'll attribute it to our, our folks up in Boston, um, where they actually took anonymized cell phone data. And it was, I don't know how many millions of records, and they, they literally reverse engineered uh, patterns of life and could actually, they figured out something like 95 or 97% of the call oh, they knew exactly where the people lived and they knew where they worked they tax knew records. where they shopped, and they knew their names tax records Plus. right they, they just took, they literally said you this is what it all looks like and they and it was, there was no name there were no addresses it was just the information that came off of your cell phone with the time and date stamp and location my understanding is um is uh well it's like basically if you you can do that and then you're licensing that to hedge funds or other commercial people you're probably okay yeah my understanding is if that data comes back into the u.s government to like dhs icbp irs then you're going to get shut down it's probably what's going to ultimately happen like the government can't collect in this country for a good reason on u.s citizens which we know yeah, well, for for now, for law enforcement, they can get a warrant and go do that. With yeah, with the warrant, you're fine. Right. So, so that business model probably is not going to be unless they put a court order thing around it for government use for U.S. citizens. It's not going to be a viable long term, is my guess. So that's add a reminder. That's, that's the line I feel. Yeah. That's certainly the line I was told earlier today. Uh, it's well, you know, it's the interpretation of twelve triple three, right? And what that mm -hmm. looks like, right? Which is the the you know the the presidential directive that allows for you know some level of use of of national assets, and that those are writ large. Yeah. To, 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 you know, for internal uses, it's really specific. That's why you have um, very specific. Pums or proper use memoranda that are actually formulated for every time that happens, and you can have standing pums, and, and they're, they they do exist for things like you know earthquake mitigation and you know look at yeah. ice flows and and you know and, and when disasters happen things like that. All right, um, suspicious behavior or you know right rolls up a human trafficking operation. Well, you're going to sniff everything in that area that from one of these troves. Because you probably got a reason to ex explore it and see what else is in there. But you know, I I, I never did, and it's a, probably a horrific thing to even think about. But when you have uh, you know a, a, a major national na natural disaster, um, and you can't find people, right? And so why wouldn't you want to go back through? And I'm sure there's probably some sort of exemption for that too, and so they can use it and say, hey, when's the last time we actually you know we got a ping from their cell phone? At least we'll know you know sometime place within these. three you know, but, the area with this that would be relatively easy because you're not getting pattern of life. You just say, no, hey, no. We're, just, we're doing a snapshot, non-identified ping um, or a sequence of pings over the last two hours. And 
we're only going to actually get the last ping and just because you can't make make sure it's not an anomalous ping. So, so when you pull that through as a heat map or something, right? So I didn't quite mean to make the conversation about privacy necessarily, but it does from a business aspect kind of make me think of a lot of the crowdsourcing applications that are out there. Folks are, you know, from an intelligence standpoint, you obviously had, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't want to even bring up things like Tom Nod because I don't think that's a, that's a one-off thing that was acquired and, and did a very focused thing. But there was other ones out there, we'll call it like TaskRabbit and things like that, that people are using for uh, crowdsourcing, even analytic tasking as well. You know, hey, yeah. you, you know, you know, but but then managing the information of the sources, you know, as an analytics company, um, how do you build confidence in those sources and manage yeah. the uh, and, and, and manage the data behind the people, you know? Hmm. I mean, we're talking like, you know, like a geospatial collect in a polygon and you're getting a survey or a picture. Like, how do you trust that? Well, not even trust it, but also, you know, how do you treat them? Or do you treat them like an Uber app where you have them go out and do these things, these specific tasks? You know, it's one thing to say, hey, go out and take a picture of a cell tower. But, hey, I want you to go take a take a picture of the front front gate of this military installation. You know, uh, yes. you know, you get into, you know, borderline fringe put them in danger or, you know, maybe safety concerns where maybe you don't even know what that spot is or even if there's dangers involved, but you know, yeah, you, you guys throw them in a safety situation. You're going to have to get Matt McNabb on the, on the, on the next, next deal here since he's CEO of native and he's, he's, he's pretty smooth. Um, hey, bring it, man. would love to have he, 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 he guys would love that. I, I'd, I'd come again if there's a if there's room for a, a little small window in the left hand lower left hand corner. Yeah, I can make I can make, <laughs> I can make this a panel easy for or five people. Easy. Yeah, so he, he he's got guys that do you know do some of that, and you know he had them in Syria, yeah, you know, in the middle of the Civil War, and you know, um, and somehow you build those collection networks. Uh, you got you got spatial networks that company, same thing. Um, and um, I think you'll find that there's people willing to ride around on a moped for for five U.S. dollars that are delivered virtually. Yeah, that's just going to happen. And if it's um, and what you do to mitigate it is uh, these guys were 1099. So he's like, hey, look, you don't do it if you think it's at risk. Um, first of all, you just got to let put it in their hands. Uh, second of all is you, of course, you build a system that um, qualifies and um, scores these guys over time. And when you're not sure, you send you send three out and see if the answer comes back the same. And then you can score them all as potentially viable, right? You have to you build the trust. This is like but, mechanical Turk models. That is, but that's the same thing that that, that you was vote, you vote the answer and then you can right? read out potentially bad. Yeah, collectors. So, so as a as an investor, how do you evaluate data companies like that, in which their data is very, we'll call it, uh, uh, volatile with with their uh, their collection methods? And you know, we could be just on that note. We could be talking about drone collections that um, come in from hobbyists, and there's like a marketplace for the drone data. Um, there is. That's true. But in a lot of ways, I feel like that's more stable and established because it's easier. Yeah. Uh, regulate that from yeah. an airspace perspective. Get caught even if you don't follow the rules. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I that's probably a little bit outside my lane. I don't know exactly where that's going to go, but because um, uh, we haven't really 
we made the native investment and we like what Dan and uh, Jim Hunt did with native out of Laverock and Riverbend just basically sidecarred that deal. Um, and we bet on Matt and his team and it was a platform. So we knew it was scalable and uh, we knew the dogs were eating the dog food, um, you know, in the marketplace to head and inside the beltway and it was working and it just like the upside was commercial with the PepsiCo's and all of that of the world for survey. And, um, and we knew the platform, this company could be like 20 people or 30 people, whatever he's got. And, but it could have thousands of um, collectors that could ultimately be ranked on the credibility, some kind of credibility score. Yeah, and just to go back, I have no problem with those types of technologies or use cases. Um, I think it's a fascinating to see how people handle those types of yeah. problems within a business. Yeah. And uh, once again, because it's, it's almost like paving new ground, you know? Yeah, and an example use case he likes to cite, just in case the audience wonder about that, it's like, what's the what's the price of, you know, I don't know a gallon of milk in, you know, 10 different grocery stores in Zimbabwe? And the client may be whoever that needs that, that's somehow driving some kind of consumer price index change over time that may be a leading indicator for some kind of bet. <laughs> I mean, okay, pretty awesome. Um, uh, or the Department of State that needs that. They want to know if the price of wheat's going to go up, cause the price of bread go up, and then have an Arab Spring. But what are leading indicators? Um, so. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. Uh, Daryl, do we have anything else on the, the pallet before we wrap up? Man, we've I, I told you. I mean, this is like, okay, we just got warmed up now. Now we got another three or four hours. We're still <laughs> around, right? And we won't film it. We'll just sit around and chat. But yeah, you know, uh, side. You know, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for, for uh, you know, spending, in, uh, you know, an hour with us today. And uh, um, love to have you back. And uh, hey, man, we'll take you up on that offer to, to arrange a, a, a tour. Panel, how's that sound? Okay, sounds good. Yeah, it'd be awesome. Uh, appreciate man. being on your show, Adam and Daryl. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, really smooth for anybody out there thinking about jo- uh, being on their on their podcast. Obviously, and appreciate the opportunity to be here and speak with everybody. Now, appreciate it, Mark. Thanks very much. And uh, all right, everybody. Well, this is Adam Simmons and Daryl Murdoch with another Adam and Daryl View the World here on Project Geospatial. Here with uh, guest Mark Dumas. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you.